Well, uh, good morning. Um, as several people have mentioned uh, already, my name is Todd Daly. I teach theology and ethics at Urbana Theological Seminary in town. And admittedly, uh, anytime you get a seminary professor up in the pulpit, it's a, it's a bit risky. You never know what you're going to get. So credit Randy to uh, giving me this opportunity. Uh, Randy is uh, fresh off an intense time of solitude and study and, um, at, at Disney World, and so he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be coming back in a couple of weeks, uh, charged up for a, a new semester. But uh, in the meantime, you're, you're stuck with me. So uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you this morning and confess that some of us are weary or, or tired or anxious or have been carrying a lot of stuff that's been weighing us down. May, may you come this morning and take the sermon and make it yours. In your name we pray, amen. Well, William Camillo, in 1947, decided to take a right-hand turn instead of a left-hand turn. Maybe not much of a big deal, but he was a bus driver in the Bronx, and for 16 years he had been driving the same route, until this morning. And instead of going left, he went right, and just kept on going. And he didn't stop until he got to Florida. (laughs) Ever ever felt like doing that? Uh, It's it's interesting. Uh, Apparently, uh, when he notified his passengers that he was going to take this little detour, uh, he warned them ahead of time, um, eight people actually decided to stay on and go with them to Florida. When, when the bus company finally realized that he was no longer driving his route and people were waiting for the bus, they put out an all-points bulletin, and for two weeks, they were unable to track down a New York City bus, even in Florida, until he finally turned himself in by telegramming his office and asking for $50 so he could get home. When he was asked why he did it, He said that he just decided one day that he'd had enough. He said, this New York traffic gets to you. It's like driving in a squirrel cage. Bill Camillo was tired, so he checked out. But his actions kind of uh, touched a nerve with the rest of society. He became kind of a folk celebrity hero. So much so that they realized they really couldn't press charges against him And so the only thing they could do to punish him was to give him his old job back. (laughs) And he took it. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes we just want to check out. Sometimes we're tired, we're fed up, we've had enough. Sometimes we just want to tell the world where to go, to grab a beer off the beverage cart, and to ride an emergency chute to safety. Uh, in the unlikely event of a water landing. (laughs) See, they're they're not alone. For all the promises of a life of leisure afforded in our modern era, we have never been so busy or burdened 
with life in our history. With increasing control over the world through technology comes the burden of increased responsibility, the burden of increased stress, the burden of anxiety over the future. We seem more tired and worn out and burdened than ever. A hundred years ago, people would die at home with their loved ones, typically. Now, we're faced with the burden of when to remove life support. When we talk about how we're doing with one another, we rarely hear anyone say, well, I'm well-rested, I'm getting enough sleep, I don't have any real stress in my life, and I generally find myself wondering what to do with all my free time. I mean, you say that around here, and people are likely to think you're some kind of nut job. We are the generation of multitaskers, and no one does this better than moms. Pay the bills, go to work, get the kids to soccer practice and piano lessons, have the neighbors over for a grill-out, program the DVR while cooking dinner and feeding the dog, book clubs, Bible studies, community and church meetings, sandwich somewhere in between. Then there's the added stress of having to deal with members of her immediate family. Moms endure the complaining, the unrealistic demands, the feet dragging and the pouting, not to mention what the kids do to her. (laughs) Uh, Some of us are burdened with an increasing workload or impossible demands. In this kind of economy, we're all being asked to do more with less. Others are trapped in unfulfilling or draining jobs with no hopes or opportunities of advancement or a, a possibility of flourishing. Some of us work in highly competitive environments where we have a critical boss who never shows appreciation or never seems to show up. Some of us have worked in environments where the, the, the motto is, you know, watch your back. Watch your back. Some of us carry still heavier burdens. Maybe you've never been able to live up to the expectations of your parents or your spouse. Maybe you've been wounded with words that have lodged themselves deep in your soul and they've become part of your identity. And there's a a tremendous amount of energy expended in trying to live up to those words. Then there's the burden of broken relationships that are utterly beyond repair and the perpetual energy of trying to reconcile with the past that can't be changed. All of us, to some degree, are burdened by habitual sin. Still others are trapped in addictive or destructive patterns of behavior. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the burden of trying to be a Christian. Maybe you're burdened by religion or trying to meet the unrealistic demands of perfection, living the perpetual life of performance where you're always on. The burden of keeping up appearances, the burden of impression management. We are weary. And if any of these may describe you this morning, if you're tired of carrying around burdens, if you're tired of trying to open closed doors, if you're fed up, beat up, burned out, then Jesus is calling you. Hopefully there's some good news this morning. 
And the text, as uh, Katie read to us earlier, is uh, found on your pew Bibles on page 689, if you'd like to turn there. It's worth reading again. Jesus is calling the weary to come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, I want to talk about three, three aspects of this invitation. Um, we find the conditions of the offer, the character of the inviter, and the consequences of the invitation. Conditions, character, uh, and consequences. So first, Jesus' invitation is good news to the weary because he offers us a better yoke. It it might appear at at first glance that Jesus is giving us some type of invitation to put our burdens down and to just kind of chill. And, And that might be part of it. But he immediately qualifies his invitation with two further commands. Put on my yoke, take up my yoke, and learn from me. Take and learn. Now, a yoke was used to make carrying heavy burdens more manageable, easier. Yokes were typically used to link animals together, like oxen. But in the Roman world, yokes were also used by individuals to carry loads that would otherwise be extremely difficult. I mean, if you, if you have to carry something heavy, it's better to have a yoke than to be without. Though surely, when you're done, it's, it's a welcome relief to just take the thing off your shoulders and rest. Over time in Israel's history and throughout Scripture, we see, however, that yoke was also appropriated as a metaphor, a metaphor of absolute submission to someone else's authority, a sign of absolute submission or servitude to someone else. And believe it or not, this could be actually construed both positively and negatively. For instance, Israel, when they were in bondage to Egypt, was often spoken of as being under the yoke of slavery and oppression, clearly a negative connotation. But you could also be yoked in the positive sense. It was good to be yoked to wisdom. It was good to be yoked to a trustworthy leader. In fact, as several scholars would say, that Jesus' words here are eerily similar to words that developed in the genre of wisdom literature in Israel's history between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. Some of his words are strikingly similar, for instance, to the sage Joshua ben Shira, uh, what is commonly known as some of the apocryphal literature and is actually included in some larger versions of the Bible. Ben Sira says, draw near to me, And these, by the way, are the words of wisdom. You who are uneducated and lodge in the house of instruction. Why do you say you are lacking in these things? And why do you endure such great thirst? Put your neck under her yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. 
See with your own eyes that I have labored but little and found for myself much serenity or peace. Striking similarities between the words of Jesus and the words of Joshua ben Sirah. Both follow this kind of formula, inviting the simple or the tired or the weary to take up the yoke of wisdom and to find rest. And Jesus is essentially offering the weary and heavily burdened an opportunity not simply to take off that yoke, but to take off that yoke and to exchange it for a better one. Because you can't wear two yokes at the same time. Now, it's somewhat irritating that Jesus' words are so compressed, so concise. Matthew doesn't give us any more details. It's unhelpfully vague. What, What kind of burdens is he talking about? And in the context, it's most likely that Jesus was dealing with people who were trying to measure up to the excessive rules and the rigidity of the Pharisees. In fact, Matthew later records Jesus' own criticism of some of the Pharisees, and he does not mince words. In Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they tell you, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And here is where Jesus' invitation is radically different. For no rabbi ever said, take up my yoke. Take up the yoke of wisdom, yes. Take up my yoke, No, that's ludicrous. Only Jesus could make such a ridiculous claim. But it's also interesting to note what Jesus doesn't say here. He doesn't say, obey my principles. He doesn't say, uh, get your act together before you come in and check with me. He doesn't say, do more, give more, study more, confess more, or try harder. See, that's religion. That's religion, isn't it? Religion says obey the rules, conform to the standards set down for you. Religion says come to church. Jesus says come to me. Not that these need to be mutually exclusive. We are glad you're here this morning. (laughs) But the Christian life is not primarily about following abstract principles. The Christian life is primarily about following a person in the flesh. This doesn't mean, however, that we throw off the law. For earlier in Matthew, what's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, um, undoubtedly the most brilliant discourse ever given in our history, Jesus internalized the Old Testament law, exposed the Pharisees' hypocrisy, and actually made the law seem more impossible, more difficult. The law says don't hate your brother. Jesus says if you hate your brother, you're as as guilty as a murderer. The law says don't lust after another person. Jesus says if you lust, you're guilty of adultery. Jesus told the Pharisees about the Sabbath and said you've got it all wrong. We aren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for us. Seemingly impossible demands. 
Come, take up my yoke. But Jesus also says, learn. He invites the weary to learn from him. The word learn here in the Greek actually means to become a disciple, to become a follower. It involves a lifelong process. It's experimental learning. Experiential learning, rather. It involves following Jesus, emulating his actions, becoming intimately acquainted with his life. And here's where we tend to distort the gospel, what it means to be a Christian. In our kind of typical utilitarian American fashion, we we want people just to bottom line it for us. Tell me what the Christian faith is about. One radio pastor used to say, hell canceled, heaven guaranteed. It's not wrong, but it's, it's put in such a way that it makes it really simple. Let's see, hell canceled, heaven guaranteed. I'm in. I'm good. I, I believe it. But salvation is more than destiny. Salvation is a life. Salvation is a life. And Jesus here is inviting us to live with him, to be his disciples, to be lifelong learners of his way. We, however, have a tendency to subscribe to the school of try harder. If 10 minutes a day of prayer isn't working, go for 20. Read your Bible more. Make sure you share the gospel with at least one person every week. Do you ever think about this? Following Jesus may actually mean dropping out of a Bible study. Or two. The underlying assumption here is that if you just try hard enough when you really need it, you'll be able to perform under pressure. Be more patient. Be more loving. Be kind. I wish someone would just say, be real. Be real. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, notes that we have essentially failed to recognize this key difference between trying and training. And the truth is that trying harder is a much heavier burden than Jesus is asking us to carry. Trying to behave on the spot when it really matters, as Jesus did, will prove quite impossible if we have not first undergone some type of regiment of training. Willard says, we cannot behave on the spot as he did and taught if in the rest of our time we live as everybody else does. The on-the-spot episodes are not the place where we can, even by the grace of God, redirect unchristlike but ingrained tendencies of action toward sudden Christ-likeness. Hence the difference between trying and training. And I think one of the best definitions I've ever come across for training uh, is, is up on the screen behind me. Training. Engaging in a set of particular practices, procedures, or exercises which will enable me to do in the future what I am now unable to do through direct effort. Doing something that will enable me to do in the future what I now am unable to do through direct effort. If, if I were to go and sit down at this piano and try really, really, really hard to play a Beethoven sonata, never had a lesson, it would not go real well. 
Maybe with a little help. Someone show me where middle C is, and then maybe we could try from there. But no amount of effort is going to produce that sonata. I would probably need about 70 to 80 years of lessons to even get anywhere close to that. Ask a weightlifter how it is they've been able to bench press 350 pounds. They, they probably won't tell you I just, you know, I saw a really cool movie and got an adrenaline rush and decided to just go do it. Hours and hours in the gym. I'm not sure why anyone would want to do that, but I, that's, that's okay. The Christian life takes practice. Why should we expect Christianity to be any different? Now, now certainly this rule does not preclude God from unleashing his power through us at particular times and places, enabling us to do superhuman things. But in general, that's the exception and not the rule. Believe it or not, we're not called to do superhuman things. We're only called to be human and to model our lives after the God who became the one true human being in Jesus Christ. So, in order to be patient with someone who has let us down or rubs us the wrong way, we must first have practiced patience in our more mundane daily activities, like driving the speed limit or deliberately standing in the longest line at the grocery store. You want to talk about countercultural formative behavior? Try that sometime. In order to be the kind of people who fully engage others and give them the gift of listening, the gift of listening, we must, uh, instead of rather thinking about what we're going to say while the other person is talking, we must first have learned to cultivate the ability to listen to God in silence and solitude. Why would we expect that to be any different? You want to combat hurry sickness? Try doing things more slowly. Brother Lawrence, in uh, his wonderful little book, The Practice of the Presence of God, was a monk, uh, but he learned very quickly that in order to cultivate God's presence, he needed to wash the dishes in a particular way to cultivate that presence of God. Washing dishes was a spiritual exercise. Or put somewhat negatively, we ought not to expect uh, an improvement on any kind of relationship with a difficult roommate or coworker or spouse unless we've first spent some time in a solitary place praying for their welfare. Praying for their welfare and asking God to unmask the things in our heart that we find so irritating in them. Christianity takes practice. And Jesus calls the weary and the burdened to come to him by coming under the yoke of his care and learning from him. So once again, what's weighing you down? What do you have around your arms and your neck? What are you yoked to? (laughs) Because we all yoke ourselves to something or someone. Whoever or whatever we serve to, we serve or submit to, is our yoke. 
And the myth, the very American myth, that we need freedom to pursue happiness is itself another kind of yoke. Moreover, it's another myth that these yokes are comfortable. Oh, we, we may get used to them. But they still inflict their wounds. They may not dig into our shoulders, but make no mistake, they dig into our soul. We can come to Jesus. Jesus' invitation is good news for the weary because he offers a better yoke. Secondly, uh, this, is the, this is the character portion. Uh, Jesus' invitation is good news to the weary because he's trustworthy, because of his character. He tells the weary that he is gentle and humble in heart. Now, it, it might actually seem kind of unusual for anyone actually to, to, to make that kind of verbal statement out loud. In our day and age, anyone who says that typically is someone who can't be trusted, someone who, who isn't humble. There's the story of the pastor who was given a button from his congregation that said, I'm humble. So he, he wore it on his lapel the next week, and they had to take it away from him. If you wanted to describe a leader worth following, meek and humble admittedly aren't very high on our lists. Not if we want to be somebody. Not if we want to change the world. Not if we want to go places. We tend to equate meek with weak or overly sensitive. You know, the, the, the gentle and the humble are those guys that get sand kicked in their faces, write lots of poetry and keep a journal. They're the kind of people who weep over every sunset. But what Jesus was likely doing here was contrasting himself to the attitude and the temperament of the Pharisees. Jesus himself described the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as full of pride. They loved their places of honor. They set themselves apart in their dress. They loved their tassels, their titles. They reveled in their authority. They loved their knowledge, and they lorded it over others, as we saw earlier. The prideful, arrogant, rigid, unflinching, and unconcerned with those who couldn't keep up. But Jesus' mission and ministry is fully consistent with God's concern for the weak and the marginalized throughout the Old Testament. God always takes the side of the least of these. God always takes the side of the, the weak the downtrodden, the burdened, and the marginalized. And Jesus models this in the New Testament. His triumphal entry was on a donkey in fulfillment of a Zechariah prophecy. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Matthew notes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah as well. And towards the end of that, he he quotes from Isaiah and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of these words by God, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Some of us are smoldering this morning. Jesus taught about meekness. The meek will inherit the earth. Or in, in the words of Simon and Garfunkel, Blessed are the sat upon, the spat upon, the ratted on. Gentle and humble? Yes, gentle and humble. But make no mistake, Jesus is also God in the flesh, God incarnate. The smartest person who ever lived, 
yet he exhorts his listeners to take his yoke upon themselves. He doesn't say, follow me because I'm brilliant, smart, powerful, or persuasive, or even because he's able to transform people from sinners into saints. He says, come to me because I am gentle and humble in heart. Think, just just think about how radical that message is in an age where the best colleges and universities in our country are highly selective, where only the most highly qualified get through, where heavy burdens are inflicted on the students to to weed out the strong from the weak, where cutthroat competition is encouraged so that we can set up a system of comparison between the A students and the also-rans to distinguish excellence from average, which fosters pride and class ranking. Think of how radical this message is where professors are more known for being arrogant, distant, and unconcerned with whether or not a particular student makes it. Truth be told, however, many of us are drawn to these types of programs. It offers us an opportunity to see what we're made of, to compete at high levels, and to distance ourselves from the rest of the pack. Having a PhD can be a really heavy burden. And honestly, some of these challenges do appeal to our flesh, to our pride. We don't want humble and gentle, even though we may not always enjoy it, because it means that our degree or our pedigree is more enhanced. We don't want humble and gentle, unless, that is, we're tired or we're hurting. No one wants to go to a harsh or angry dentist when they need a root canal. Someone who scoffs at the use of Novocaine. (laughs) But Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for us. He came for the sick. Jesus' invitation is most appealing to the burdened, the downtrod, and the weary. So, to those who've heard, you'll never measure up, Jesus says, when I look at you, I see my righteousness. To those who are tired of trying to finish first, Jesus says, come finish last with me. This is a a picture of Derek Robeson, 400-meter semifinalist in Barcelona who blew out his hamstring. And the several years of training in in one quick pop went up in smoke. And uh, as he he lay there on the track, uh, a, a big man barreled through security in the crowd, ran over, picked him up, and helped him get across the finish line to a standing ovation. It was his dad. To those whose feet are dingy, calloused, or marred from walking down the wrong paths, Jesus says, I am waiting with a towel and a bowl of warm water. For those who are worn out from seeking others' approval, Jesus says, I could picture your face and have loved you before you even existed. And for those who have been forsaken by a spouse or burdened by a fractured relationship that is utterly beyond repair, 
Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And for those who are tired of trying to open closed doors, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. And this is good news because the life that Jesus is calling us to live is fully consistent with his character. And probably the most profound mystery in all of the Christian faith is not just that Jesus is a gentle, humble teacher, but that this same Jesus is God in the flesh. This Jesus Christ is fully human without ceasing to be fully God. I like how the Roman Catholic theologian Edward Schillebeck said it, Jesus is the only true face of God. Yet he humbled himself, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death on a cross. While Jesus certainly was not unaware of his exalted status, he never ever used it to bow, breed, uh, bow beat, brow beat. I'm sorry, I lost it there. Uh, Jesus never used this as an opportunity to beat people over the head. <laughs> I'm not even going to try it another time. <laughs> Jesus Christ has already walked the road that he is calling us to walk as his disciples. And we need to be honest with ourselves and ask us whether or not that is really an attractive offer. And I, I want to gently suggest that the attractiveness of that offer might be a litmus test for the state of your soul. Are you good? Are you, are you good this morning? Is this maybe not an attractive option? Maybe for others of us, Um, it's the offer we've been waiting for. Jesus is trustworthy. He offers us an invitation with qualifications. He's trustworthy. And finally, the consequence. The consequences. We will find rest. Jesus' invitation is good news to the weary because he promises us true rest. If we take up his yoke, we will find rest for our souls. Now, the word souls here is meant to speak of one's whole embodied life. Souls is meant to express the deepest portion of our being. And we honestly tend to live in a so heavily caffeinated, frenetic, 24-7 culture that when we hear the word rest, we usually think of sleep or dozing off in a hammock gently swaying between two palm trees and maybe a corona or two. And certainly Jesus does uh, invite us to a deliberate period of stopping or ceasing from our ceaseless activity, a Sabbath rest, as the writer of Hebrews says. But the rest of which Jesus speaks also is the rest that is available in the midst of hardship and uncertainty, that it is the rest of obedience which drives away worry, anxiety, and care. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed under the Nazi regime, I think he knew. I think he knew about this. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, in the midst of all the uncertainty, he says, only Jesus Christ, who bids us to follow him, knows the journey's end. 
But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. And Jesus offers rest for the weary and the burdened because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Another frustratingly ambiguous statement. We're never told why Jesus' yoke is so comfortable or how it is possible that his burden can be light. At first glance, it seems kind of like a paradox, a light burden. I mean, we've already, we've already seen that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes everything seem even harder. He internalizes the law. It makes it appear even more stringent. I've got to get control over my thought life. How can this burden be easy? Well, it's most likely because Jesus doesn't leave us to our own devices. He doesn't command from a distance. He knows what it is like to be tired and worn out and weary. He knows what it is like to be misunderstood, mistreated, and maligned. He knows what it is like to be burdened and bruised, broken and betrayed. And I think one commentator says it best when he said, Jesus' yoke is not lighter because he demands less, but because he bears more of the load with the burdened. So are you weary? Are you tempted to get on a bus and just go the other way? Tired of doing things under your own strength? Tired of living up to impossible expectations? Tired of your own failure and trying to be a Christian? Tired of trying to open doors that remain closed? <laughs> well, here's, here's, it's good news. It's good news. If you're still breathing this morning or are awake, Jesus' invitation still stands. In a world that is filled with closed doors, from exclusive clubs to gated communities to prestigious universities or the corner office, his door remains wide open. Jesus knows all about closed doors, doesn't he? In fact, you might even say that his entire earthly ministry was bound on one end by closed door and at the other end as well, from Bethlehem to the garden tomb. At least almost. For there is one door that did not stay closed for long. And as someone once said, the stone was rolled away, not so much so that Jesus could get out, but so that the world could see in. No amount of effort on our part could ever roll away that stone. And the only reason, the only reason that Jesus' offer is valid today is on account of that open door. And because he is the gentle servant who has borne the heaviest burden of all. The sins of the world and the rejection by his father. But he has conquered the grave. And he invites us to come. Are you weary? Are you worn out? Just come. Just come.